This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Anu Bradford. Anu Bradford is the Henry L. Mose Professor of Law and International Organization and Director for the European Legal Studies Center at the Columbia Law School. Welcome to the podcast, Anu. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm delighted to be here. We're going to talk about the book, which has had an incredible effect called The Brussels Effect, uh, How the European Union Rules the World. And there's a paperback edition, which has recently come out also, which also gives me an excuse to, to talk to you about it. I mean, I... When the first book first came out, I must admit, I, I sort of held back because a long line, a long queue formed immediately if people wanted to talk to you. And the longer I waited, though, the longer the line seemed to be. So I finally now have this moment to get a hold of you to talk about the book. And uh, my first question is rather, rather personal before we get into the, the detail of some of the arguments you make in your book. Um, you say in the introduction that you actually first coined the phrase the Brussels effect back in 2012, but the book obviously came out last year to enormous popularity. Were you surprised by the, by the reaction the book received when it first came out? Well, Paul, I, I certainly was just genuinely and deeply delighted. <laughs> I, 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 I was just so pleased. I, my goal in writing the book was to generate a conversation. And that to me was the measure of success. And the fact that it did generate so much debate in different corners of the world and was just extremely rewarding. Whether I was entirely surprised, probably not in the sense that I'm a firm believer in the thesis and the idea that there was a demand for a different, more complete and more accurate narrative of the European Union. So I think I identified the kind of need for this conversation and was able to then step in and respond to that demand. Because it is that red thing, this book of yours, The Brussels Effect, it's a, an academic book complete with 100 pages of notes to, to just to prove it's an academic book, but at the same time has reached an audience beyond the academic world. And so that's what I think it was rather interesting. I will take you to task at, at the beginning, and you may well say it wasn't my idea, it was the publishers, but the, the sub, subtitle I just gave now, uh, The Brussels Effect subtitle, How the European Rules the World, that is slightly hubristic, no? It is slightly uh, overstating the, the argument you make in the book. Well, Paul, I, I stand by the title. I think it <laughs> fundamentally, I am not saying that the EU is powerful in ways that wouldn't be genuine. It is powerful through its rules and regulations. And the book articulates how it sets the rules for the world. So in that sense, I think that the title is, it may be provocative, but it's honest. And I think it's intellectually honest in, in, in res respecting the core thesis of the book. So I really make an argument how law can be a source of power and influence. And in that sense, I think the subtitle has its place uh, on the cover of the book. <laughs> okay, well done. Um, it strikes me also that a lot of people like the book because it kind of... Uh, Gave, it kind of validated and made the, the European Union feel good about itself, you know, all this, this thesis of the European Union being in decline and being less popular uh, and, and weak and all those kind of things against the big geopolitical forces out there outside its borders. Uh, but it strikes me again, this is to, again to challenge you slightly, that some of your fans have only 
like parts, the only read parts of the book which they like. Your book, to be fair, is, is very nuanced. It covers all the different arguments. It doesn't try and make one single case and to the exclusion and ignoring uh, all the other elements, which actually make it a much more subtle uh, analysis, if I may say so. But do you, do you feel sometimes that some of your fans uh, haven't, it's almost like they haven't read all the book, they just read the, the parts that they like, which proves the point that Europe is powerful? So I, I think that is a challenge every time you write the book and you try to be extremely nuanced. And you need to understand that readers engage with your book at different levels. Some want to read every sentence and even the footnotes so that they can really <laughs> trace the sources of the arguments. But you also, and I really did want to read the readers who may not have a full day to put aside to read the book. And that's why I have also, also been grateful for opportunities like this, that there are conversations that even if you haven't had a chance to read the book, that there are people who still at least get the zest of the book. And it makes them more curious and more critical when they encounter these arguments and these narratives about Europe's weakness. And maybe one of those arguments really then traces them back to the book and makes them reread it and, and have a more comprehensive look. But I, I welcome readers who read closely. I welcome readers that engage more superficially. Um, it is the conversation that can take place at many different levels. What I found uh, quite extraordinary is, I said in the introduction that you first coined the phrase back in 2012, but it's almost as if only when your book was published last year that many people, maybe not an inner core of academics say, or law students and law professors, but the outside world began to realize there was this thing, the Brussels effect, and yet that you do, you do chronicle things like the reach, the regulation on chemicals, which goes back almost 20 years. Why do you think has this book made people suddenly realize there is the, the Brussels effect when it's already been in operation for decades, if you follow the argumentation of your book? Yeah, so it's an interesting question, Paul. In many ways, as you mentioned, for instance, chemical regulation, is something that has really shaped the global standards on how a, a, a just hundreds of products are being produced. But we as consumers don't always realize how some chemical component in the paint that we use when we paint our house or the car that we buy, how those chemical regulations coming from Europe have ultimately shaped the product that we are using and made the product safer. But I think it was the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, that really brought it home. There is not a single internet user that would not have received some kind of notices of mm. privacy uh, settings um, and uh, the websites are using. So that was one very concrete example where we were able to trace those rules to the European Union and realize how much it is really shaping our lives. I think the big antitrust cases, the competition law cases against these big tech giants that are so enormous in, in uh, our uh, sort of daily lives. So um, there are so many examples where the consumers and internet users and citizens can visibly see and, and feel the Brussels effect that that might have really brought it home, if you like. But what comes very, to me at least anyway, I'm sure many others strikingly through the book is, is how pervasive and all-encompassing the Brussels effect is. So we, we talked about GDPR, General uh, uh, Data Protection Regulation, which is obviously, to use the jargon, horizontal, it affects all sectors in the same way. There's no very few exceptions of any at all. There's the vertical thing, for example, uh, as I mentioned again, is now reach and chemical, which affects obviously a sector. And then you mentioned the antitrust dimension, which tends to be more 
company specific, right? When two companies want to merge or a company is, is, is challenged by, by the authorities, often through a complaint by another company. So whether you're a company, a sector, or just in industry, all aspects are covered. Is that fair? In many ways, I think that to me was the most striking and exciting um, element of the Brussels effect, that it really can be found in many different jurisdictions, in many different sectors of the economy, and very different types of sectors. So when we talk about food safety, when we talk about digital economy or environmental protection, the dynamics, the fundamental logic underlying the Brussels effect can be traced to all those different settings, yet they affect very different types of industries and, and uh, different jurisdictions. And that made also the process of researching the book so exciting that I got to look into so many different areas of law so many different countries around the world and was really able to draw on the terrific research team of international students who were able to look at the laws in Africa and uh, business practices in Latin America. So in, in that way, I, I think it's fair to say that it is all encompassing. Brussels effect is not everywhere. That is not something that I try to claim in the book, yeah. but I do show through these a myriad of examples of how much of our economy is shaped by rules coming from Brussels. For the benefit of our listeners, again, can you briefly explain what you mean by de facto Brussels effect and de jure Brussels effect? Yes, Paul. So that is the key distinction that I make in the book. So by de facto Brussels effect, I refer to the European Union's ability to unilaterally regulate uh, the global marketplace simply by regulating the single market. And the logic there is that the global corporations that need access to the European market can afford not to comply with the European rules, but they often make the decision to extend those European rules across their global production and across their global uh, behavior. So it is the companies and the market forces that are driving their business interests that then lead to the, uh, uh, the global diffusion of the, the EU laws in practice. De jure Brussels effect, that's where I refer to the governments as opposed to businesses uh, copying uh, or emulating the European standards in their own legislative drafting. So we talked about the GDPR earlier. We haven't only seen the global companies like Facebook or Google or Apple or Microsoft adopt the GDPR as their global privacy standards. That is the de facto Brussels effect. But we've also seen many governments around the world adopt they domestic privacy regulations, and they have used the GDPR as a template. So that is what I refer to as the jure Brussels effect. Thank you. Uh, one of the very good points of the book, but also very annoying for somebody like me who's trying to challenge you, is that, is that you do cover all the angles. You're not hell-bent on, on making a case, as I said earlier, and ignoring you know, facts which get in the way of your argumentation. You are very uh, even-handed, if that's, that's the right phrase. You're certainly nuanced in your analysis. Um, but I want to, the number thing I want to try and pick you up on, if I can, this the, the quality of regulation. I mean, it's one thing to say that the, the, the European Union produces all these regulations that uh, everybody else has to comply with. I'm obviously simplifying grotesquely there by saying that. But there's also a question, isn't there, is there not about how the EU goes about making the regulation in the first place? By that, I mean things like the, the Commission, I know, is very good at and very sensitive to the to 
the criticism in the outside world that it should do due process, that it should consult widely with stakeholders through public consultations, et cetera, uh, impact assessments, as you say in the book, uh, cost-benefit analyses for our, for our Amer American friends. And that's all very well and good, maybe upstream. But as, as these regulations find their way through the legislative process, right, with the other institutions, they get picked at, they get lobbied, and they get amended, and they get, and then at the very end, through things like the very, to, to be very geeky, the, uh, the trilogue procedure, which takes place behind closed doors, a relatively small group of people. All these kind of compromises and deals are struck often at the last minute in the early hours of the morning. So, and there's no impact assessment or cost benefit analysis made at that very late stage. I just wonder whether, you know, the gap between the original proposal by the European Commission upstream and then the final product, say two years later, whatever it is, downstream, there's a, there's a, there's a big gap between those two to tech sometimes, no? Yeah, I, I think that is fair, Paul, in the sense that I do highlight the technocratic origins of the Brussels effect and how much it is the civil servants in Brussels that are experts that are drafting these regulations. And you're absolutely right that they are consulting widely. And that is, I think, a big benefit of how much effort is put into trying to make sure that the different stakeholders have a say their views are being considered when these legislations are being drafted. But then the, the more democratic process kicks in. And I think democracy is messy. We have the parliament involved, we have the council involved, which means we have the member states involved. But I think it's important. It does render more legitimacy to complement the more expertise-driven governance. And um, it allows uh, for the member states to also take ownership, ultimately, of all uh, these regulations. And we do need the democratic arm, the European Parliament, however imperfect some may see, uh, see their role to be, to be part of uh, this legislative drafting. And yes, lobbying is part of most cultures where uh, uh, you allow for any stakeholder input. But there I would say again, that compared to the United States, for instance, the lobbying outcomes are shown to be much more balanced in the mm. EU. The corporations have outsized influence. It's really how much you're paying. That's how much influence you're getting in the United States. That's not the logic in the European Union. So you actually do have corporations lobbying, but you also see tremendous influence that is being balanced by civil society, the NGOs. And in that sense, I am somewhat less worried about what lobbying does to, to legislation. As long as we increase its transparency, and we make sure that lobbying is a tool available for different stakeholders with different interests. Well, you make it clear in the book, and you, you don't, to be fair, only talk about GDPR, you don't only talk about REACH, you don't only talk about GMOs, but they're probably the most high visible uh, dossiers that, that maybe support your thesis, but many others. Uh, but you also say, which I found quite interesting and I'm not sure I, I totally agree I'm sure people involved in the process of lobbying would would be uh, taken aback when you say that uh, a lot of many proposals go are largely I think you use the phrase largely unscratched by by lobbying in other words that it's not particularly effective yeah I think what what I try to capture with that that if you think about the efforts that we're put into trying to halt for instance the chemical regulation the reach how many tremendously powerful corporations initially opposed the legislation. How much the United States government was lobbying against it. The same goes with many of these tech regulations. The tech industry wasn't initially behind the GDPR. Mm. So 
there certainly was a lot of opposition and efforts to derail the regulation. But many of these stakeholders have since understood that they are better off trying to influence the outcome rather than trying to actually halt the legislation. And even if you think how much in the end they are able to influence the outcomes, we can say that the chemical regulation is very strong, that came out of that, uh, that process. It is the strongest, most stringent, most, most ambitious way to regulate the safety of chemicals. The same with the GDPR. It may not be perfect. There are certain civil society organizations who can surely point to some deficiencies in privacy protections, but it is a landmark regulation and is very strongly pro-privacy regulation that has shifted both the norms and the conversations and the business practices around the world. So that's, I, I think, gives me the confidence to say that despite all this lobbying, despite how ambitious Brussels has been, despite all these efforts to try to reverse some of these ambitions, the legislation coming out of Brussels is strong. Well, one of the many paradoxes then of all this, and you talk about it in your book, is that industry and other stakeholders, civil society groups, not just the big, large corporations, obviously, complain and tr- about the, the onerous costs of regulation. That's to be fair to point, they, they, are, they are right to say that, because there's certainly costs involved in most regulation, uh, and they may get passed on to the consumer, which you touch on as well. So it's not a, a cost-free cost, as it were. Um, but at the same time, can you compare to EU with the US, maybe like GDPR, again, is probably the best example. Having lobbied maybe vehemently against it, the GDPR by the corporations and at least trying to weaken it. Once it's finally adopted, they, they accept the finality of that, the reality of, right, of the GDPR in this case being uh, finally adopted, warts and all, <laughs> and they may think. But then they fa- you go across the Atlantic and they start uh, lobbying for something like the GDPR to, be, to be, become a reality in the United States. And so having been the lobby, they lobby for, first of all, institutions to try and block something or water it down in the EU. And then they go across the Atlantic and start uh, lobbying the administration to have it introduced. Fascinating, I think. It is fascinating. And in many ways, it affirms this idea that if you can beat them, join them. And when (laughs) you have already borne the cost of adjusting your business practices to conform with the EU rules, you have nothing to lose. In fact, you have more to gain if the rest of the regulators, including the regulators in your home market, follow the EU's lead and adjust their regulatory requirements accordingly. So businesses like uniformity, Paul, and that is driving yeah. the de facto Brussels effect. But what is often driving the de jure Brussels effect is exactly what you say, that these corporations become advocates of EU regulations. We see Facebook and Apple and Microsoft call for the United States federal government to adopt a GDP type of regulation. So that is often the dynamic, that the market-based dynamic that is also then leading towards the changes in regulation abroad. Yeah, you're, you're, you're very good because at the end of the day, you're, a, you're an academic, you're not there to take sides, but you do acknowledge weaknesses. For ex- so apart from the cost aspect, which may or not be passed on to the consumer, uh, there's also the, the, the idea that you talk about product standardization leading to maybe a reduction in variety of products. So there are... There are clear downsides to regulation, right? It's not as if it's a, you know, it, it, these things may be landmark propo- uh, regulations, but there are downsides. And you're, you, re- you, you acknowledge them, but you don't quite come out in taking a view on that. Yeah, so I do try to 
uh, offer some thoughts on the conversation and whether the Brussels effect is desirable. What are the benefits for what are the costs and who is uh, experiencing the gains and who will bear those costs. So for instance, when we talked about the costliness of the GDPR, I do not worry about the big tech being able to afford to comply with the GDPR. What I do worry about is the more asymmetrical effect. What about the small companies? And might this actually be contrary what the European Union tries to do with its antitrust laws, its competition laws, when it's trying to level the playing field and make sure that it is not further entrenching the power of the big tech? So there are all those uh, various unintended consequences of regulation that one needs to be mindful of. And uh, so I don't think the EU regulation, the book doesn't make the argument that the EU always gets it right. Mm. I think what the book argues at its core is that the stakes are high because if the EU gets it right, it can get it globally right. But if the EU gets it wrong, we may have those harmful effects replicated in other parts of the world as well. So um, I, I certainly uh, accept the arguments that um, there are some losers from the Brussels effect. There are negative uh, uh, impacts um, and, and market effects with some of the regulations. But I think on balance, um, the book offers a strong argument and many examples where uh, the Brussels effect has done good not just to people in Europe, but many stakeholders outside of the EU have also welcomed the role that the EU has played in global economy through its regulation. Okay, we're going to move on in a second, almost the end of our conversation. It's gone so quickly to talk about the future of the Brussels effect and it's how how much how much life it still has in it. But before we do that, in case we give the impression that, to our listeners that the, the EU can do what it likes. It can regulate anything, anything it feels like regulating in the whole world and has to follow suit. Again, these simplifying grotesquely. You do acknowledge, but maybe spell out for our listeners instances, the conditions in which the Brussels effect does not work. So maybe you could explain a bit where the Brussels effect just doesn't happen. So there are certain elements, like if we think about financial regulation, mm. capital is very difficult to regulate because capital is mobile. You can move to another jurisdiction and decide to take your capital outside of the domain of the EU regulation. So there are many examples relating to finance where the EU's regulation reaches its limits. It is very different to if we think about regulating consumer markets or regulating the environment. You cannot move those consumers away from the EU in order to avoid uh, the, uh, the EU's jurisdiction. There's also this critical component of the Brussels effect, which I call non-divisibility. So the core idea behind the Brussels effect is this idea that the companies benefit from uniformity. It is costly for them often to customize and run a different production line and produce different varieties of the product for different markets. So because of scale economies and all these other benefits of uniform production, they tend to choose one standard. And as being the most stringent standard often, the EU standard gets chosen because if you are in compliance with the EU standard, you're good to go and sell your products around the world. But there are examples where scale economies are not important, 
where national preferences differ so much that you cannot offer the same kind of products uh, in different markets. So if you have Americans telling that you need to rinse your chicken with chlorine in order for it to be safe, and the Europeans say that if you rinse your chicken with chlorine, you cannot export your chicken into the EU. So you cannot at the same time rinse and not rinse your chicken with chlorine. So when the standards and requirements are mutually inconsistent, you cannot benefit from the scale economies. You actually need to choose to either produce for the European market or the American market, or have two, two different factories or two different manufacturing processes. So there are some examples where the Brussels effect meets its limits because the consumer demand or the regulatory environment mandates the companies to produce differently and conduct businesses differently in different markets. Okay, well, let's finish off then, Anu, by talking about the, the future of the Brussels effect. I could have spent the entire podcast quoting extracts of your book back at you, but I resisted that temptation until now. So as a way to, to introduce this part about the future of Brussels effect, let me quote back something you have written. I quote, regardless of whether they like it or not, individuals, corporations and governments, particularly foreign ones, can do little to rein in the Brussels effect as long as the fundamental criteria for its emergence exist. Whether the Brussels effect should be viewed positively or negatively is hence secondary to the less disputed conclusion that the Brussels effect simply exists and matters in today's global political economy. It is both penetrating and pervasive across a number of policy areas and far more impactful than commonly appreciated. Well, is that impact that you talk about, that you write about, part of the, uh, an issue which may be on the horizon for the Brussels effect, that it's a victim of its own success? And after a while, other blocks around the world say, why should we play the game by the rules of the EU. Let's, let's try and make up our own rules for our, to take more ownership also of rule setting in our region of the world and then export that just as, the, just as Brussels has done until now. Right. So it's an interesting way, way to think about it, Paul. So um, in many ways, um, and uh, Brussels effect has been so successful because it has not been very visible. It has not been politicized. It has been proceeding under the radar because of this technocratic uh, heart of the phenomenon. So I um, had some people come to me and say, well, you are going to ruin it now that you call it out and you make the world focus on this tremendous power that um, Brussels is exercising. Another uh, uh, sort of victim of its success could be that if I managed to introduce a sense of complacency yeah. to the EU and say that, well, we are actually powerful, so we have nothing to worry about. I certainly do not wish that to happen. There are many issues where the Brussels effect is not doing the work for the EU. Many challenges where, where meticulous, dedicated diplomacy and political capital needs to be spent to work with the other nations of the world to resolve some of the difficult problems. So in many ways, the book invites us to understand more where the power lies, how it operates, where the EU is strong, but it also then draws boundaries and shows where we need to rely on other mechanisms to uh, make progress. So in that sense, I hope it instills confidence rather than complacency. And when it comes to other countries resisting or not resisting the Brussels effect, what I would highlight is that the EU at its core is a contingent unilateralist. It is very comfortable and very willing to work with the other countries around the world. It is a multilateralist mm. at its core. So the EU is not looking to rule the world alone. 
It is not looking to dominate other countries. It is quite happy to inspire and provide templates on issues that it deeply cares about, like environmental safety, consumer health, personal privacy. Um, but EU, the EU would always be willing to team up and partner with the governments and engage in negotiations on joint standard setting, whether it is reinforcing our joint commitment to climate change and working together with the rest of the nations or working now cl more closely with the Biden administration to try to find a solution to restore transatlantic uh, data flows. So in that sense, I don't think it necessarily a contested relationship. It is an indication that the EU is willing to lead alone if the global institutions and global cooperation is not delivering, but it will always welcome partners to join that effort. Well, before we totally finish off, I, I can't help but ask you a question about, about Brexit, which you cover toward the end of the book. And again, a, a quick quote to ask my, I promise it will be the final question. And your quote is this, the high degree of dependence on access to the EU market means that UK companies will continue to adhere to EU rules in the future as the de facto Brussels effect suggests. While British companies could in principle adopt one set of standards for the European market and multiple other sets of standards for the rest of the world post-Brexit, scale economies and other benefits of uniform production make this unlikely. Thus, the Brussels effect shatters the illusion of the regulatory freedom that Brexit is meant to deliver to the United Kingdom. Well, maybe as a final point, just comment on that, on that quote, please. So Brexit is something that there are no winners. The book certainly doesn't celebrate Brexit. It is rather exposing this illusion that any nation, including a country like the United Kingdom next to such a big trading area, could declare regulatory sovereignty. There will be continuing business ties that will keep the UK closely aligned with the European Union. Geography matters in trade, and there is no way that the UK could replicate those trading opportunities with the rest of the world and ignore what the EU is doing. So there's still market forces that will dictate how the UK companies will go about producing their products and offering their services. So in that sense, rather than seeing Brexit undermining the Brussels effect, it is the Brussels effect that undermines the core uh, promise of the Brexit, the idea that the UK could now just unshackle itself from the, the, the regulatory burdens on Brussels. I think what I fear will happen more is that the UK will find itself living in a much more regulated Europe because the UK has made a decision to be a rule taker as opposed to rule maker. And we will no longer have that UK's voice at the table when those regulations are being drafted. There is much more space for the Franco-German preferences that are much more amenable to more regulation to prevail. And the UK will not be entirely spared from that. Thank you. This is absolutely fascinating. We could have gone on for much longer, but we have to leave it there. Anu Bradford, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Paul. It was a pleasure.